both buildings are on fire now. And then I saw things falling that were not falling like the metal. And I said, those are human bodies. Now I'm a New Yorker, a siren is acoustic wallpaper. Because it was the sound of the morning, when the towers fell, all siren sounds ceased. And there was this eerie silence. Knowing I'm gonna die brings focus to every day that I'm alive. And how's my audio for you? I, you sound great, look great. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, man, uh, I have no idea how grateful I am that you're here. And uh, I didn't know that you were, you know, several blocks away from September 11th. Yeah, about four blocks, four straight blocks to get there circuitously at six blocks, but it's basically a quarter mile from ground zero, right? And I read your article that you wrote on September 12th, 2001. Yeah, it's interesting to call it an article because that's, that's the, the internet was still kind of new then. Everyone had emails, but when I wrote my reflections on the day's events from September 11th, I was like, how can I, who do I give this to? And so I sent it to an email list of friends and colleagues. And that got forwarded many, many times through this, this email chain. Because remember, this is before, you know, is it before Facebook even? You know, it's before so many things that are such a fundamental part how people communicate today that it's hard to appreciate how something could get around as rapidly as it did back in 2001. So within a day, I was getting emails from people in Australia, in, in, the, in the South Pacific, and it got around the world. And just the urge for people to express their, their shared emotions over that day. So yeah, yeah that, that was a, 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 it was called the, the horror, the horror is what I titled it. You know, reading that article, one thing, having lost my father on September 11th, I've had this weird feeling that I wanted to be there and I was 12 years old. What the hell could I have done? It's not even about making a difference. It's something about being there that day. So to read your words, I felt like I was there in many ways because you were so descriptive in the way you wrote it. And, you know, it, it makes no sense as to why, or maybe it does as to why I want to be there. But to read your words was, you know, a lot of emotions came through. So I'm curious, how, how did that day shape your life, being there and experiencing that? So I came to it as a scientist, right? I mean, have degrees in physics. So when I see things happening that involve matter, motion, and energy, because that's what a physicist is an expert in, matter, motion, and energy. And, you know, I watch this sort of explosion and, uh, you know, I'm there with my camcorder because the first building was already on fire. And I, my camcorder had a, before smartphones, okay, there were these things called camcorders. And they, it had a very good zoom, optical zoom. And I wanted to, so I went out to the street because I could see it from my window, but I got a better view from my street. And I looked and I zoomed in just to see, is there risk of this building falling in my direction? Because I'm closer to the base of the building than the building is tall, okay? Um, if you want to know the mathematics of that, from where I stand, if my sight line to the top floor is greater than 45 degrees, then the building is taller than the distance I am from it. And so I just explore this just to check, and I say, no, it's not gonna fall this direction. Uh, I wonder what happened, tragic accident in the first building. And then 
we don't see the plane. We're blocked by the, the Hilton Millennium Hotel. Um, but we see debris and this explosion coming out the other side. And it's, I have all that on camcorder. I mean, it's, you know, I took a tape and sort of sealed it in a box with my September 11th memorabilia. It's my own in-house time capsule, if you will. Um, maybe my grandkids will open it one day. But to capture that, I, I'm seeing it as, well, wait a minute. This is a huge explosion, but there's no shockwave. How could there be an explosion without a shockwave? That means it wasn't a bomb. I'm going through all of this in my head in real time. I'm analyzing. I can't help it because I know physics and I know energy and I know flames and I know air and combustion and all of this. So it sounds almost insensitive, but it's the training of my mind that is analyzing everything that's unfolding in front of me. So, uh, of course, I would later learn once, because I didn't see the plane, a plane flew in, okay, there it was. And if you have gasoline or, or you know, jet fuel that atomizes by being broken up upon entering a building, and then that ignites, you get not a detonation wave, you get what's called a conflagration wave. And a conflagration wave is flames washing over whatever can fuel the flame, feed the flame as the flame extends. So it's the rate at which a flame would move through fuel, which is very different from the rate at which a detonation wave would go through. You might remember reading your... <laughs> I remember, you might remember reading that in Oklahoma City, the bomb that exploded there shattered glass blocks away on the opposite side of the target of the explosion. That's the shockwave. There was no such shockwave. So I'm watching this, and then I'm watching fragments of the building fall, all right? Both buildings are on fire now. And fragments of metal, they're sort of flickering in the wind and in the sunlight because it was still early morning, so you had these low sunlight angles that will reflect differently than if the sun is higher overhead. And then I saw things falling that were not falling like the metal. They weren't flickering. They were just falling straight. And I said, those are human bodies. And it's odd, I don't wanna say odd, it's curious that we have such different reactions to causes of death, even if the end result is that the person is dead. So you watch an, an action movie, you know, if someone sort of just gets shot and they fall over and die, okay, they got shot. But if someone goes and severs their head, you feel differently observing that. And I'm intrigued by this because in the end, in both cases, you're dead. But somehow, some deaths feel more tragic. They feel more emotion-ridden. And so to watch these bodies fall, uh, it devastated everyone gathered in the street watching this unfold. When it, someone realized, oh my gosh, that's a body, the reaction was greater than the simple knowledge that there was an explosion on the floor. When you knew in that explosion, hundreds of people died. In that you knew that intellectually, but the emotion of the individual falling I captured people's emotions like nothing I had seen or previously felt. And all this is before the collapse of the buildings, okay? You know, it, every next thing was worse than the next thing. 
Oh, there's a building that, an unfortunate accident. Oh, by the way, the moment the second building had the explosion, everyone made the instant calculation. This, this is a fascinating fact of statistics, okay? We're not very good at statistics as a species, but everyone got this right. The first one was, oh, what a, a tragic accident. A plane accidentally flew in. It's happened before. A plane flew into the Empire State Building back in the 1930s or whenever we learned of it, uh, learned that it happened. And so these things can happen. The second one, terrorist attack. You're not going to get two twin towers going up in flames within a half hour of each other, whenever, the, less than an hour. That, so everyone knew the statistical unlikely, unlikelihood of two planes randomly and accidentally flying into the two Twin Towers. So that was a fast statistical calculation that everyone made. And then a level of horror descended upon everyone. Like the emotions just escalated. And then you had the collapsing buildings. By then, I'm indoors. And the buildings collapse, and there's this wave of dust. You can think of it like the construction dust of a demolished building. It was a wave that moved through, and this, the visibility out my window dropped to about one centimeter. That's how dense it was, four blocks away. And then you knew just everybody's dead. Whatever was going on there, whoever was around there, everybody's dead. And the eeriest thing about it is, because I would have a little bit of PTSD in the following months, uh, I don't, you know, I diagnosed myself, so I don't know if it was really that, and I don't want to make less of what soldiers experience coming back from war zones, I, you know, so, but my little bit of PTSD was that entire morning from when the flame started through that hour to the second building uh, getting hit, to the first building co collapsing, the second building collapsing, there was this din of sirens outside. Now, I'm a New Yorker. A siren is acoustic wallpaper, right? <laughs> no, no one even turns around when there's a siren. If you say, did you hear that siren? What siren, all right? But this was so constant. And the sirens were juxtaposed with being eyewitness to disaster. So that the sirens were no longer this isolated thing Maybe there's a fender bender or something. It was not, it's, it took on a whole other significance within my mental state. Now, here's something that nobody talks about, but I noticed it, okay? Because those sirens became the sound of the morning, these are sirens of more and more support vehicles um, descending on ground zero. Because it was the sound of the morning, when the, when the, towers fell, all siren sounds ceased. And there was this eerie silence. And, you know, there's a word that never caught on. If you've ever been driving in a driving rain, and so there's a sound on your car, and then you go under an overpass, and it just cuts off in that instant, and then it picks up again. There's a word for that. It just never caught on. It's called a down pause. A down pause? Down pause. I knew I'd That's learned something here. Yeah, we're, we're, we're naming something that does not exist, right? There's no sound, because we gave it a name. That's what was weird about it. So there I am, there's sound, and then there is no sound. And it was one of the eeriest feelings that I ever had. 
Not only that, the construction dust, the destruction dust that filled the area is highly acoustically absorbent. So everything went silent, just basically everything. And by the way, that happened twice. The first building collapses, it settles, the second building collapses. All right. You asked how I felt. What, right. What's my takeaway? Uh, oh, my PTSD was up for six months later, I'd hear a siren, and I'd just sort of cringe a little, just a little. Nothing debilitating. Nothing, I can't go to work. No, no. It's, it was just my brain remembered that that was a bad day when I heard sirens. And this is a New Yorker telling you this, right? So that would go away probably after a year and a half. It was strong-ish for six months and just little remnants of it for up to a year. And then it all went away. There was no therapy or anything. I think just time softened it. Time heals a lot. It can heal a lot. It did for me at least. Anyhow, how did I feel? I had a friend of mine, a religious friend, a Christian religious friend who I grew up with, called me and say, he said, how do you feel? You know, I think he wanted me to bring up some kind of ire against ter religious terrorists. But no, that wasn't what I felt. I just felt for those loved ones who lost loved ones. That, that's what I felt for. Throughout the city, there were signs put up about people who were missing. People who didn't check in at the end of the day, who didn't come home that night. And I thought that was odd because if you knew they were in the World Trade Center area and they didn't come home, maybe this was their last attempt. There's this wisp of hope that maybe since there was not confirmation that your loved one died, that they could still be alive. A rare unspoken fact is hospitals were ready to take all the injured. It is rare to have a catastrophic disaster where more people are killed by it than who are injured by it. That's rare. Much more typically, let's think in warfare, you have a bomb blast. There are those who are killed directly by it. And then there, is these, there are these concentric rings around it where these people were just maimed. And there's this huge set of people who are injured by something that killed a smaller fraction of the people. Let me ask you about this uh, one thing, one thing. Your experience— I'm, sorry, I'm doing so much talking here. I, you, I should give you a chance to ask more questions. No, no, it's okay. Well, that's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I kind of got zoned in there again because this is so personal to me. So you're bringing me into an experience that, again, my father was there. So it's right. it, it's it's interesting to me to hear from— I haven't really had a one-on-one -on -one with someone who experienced it, even though there were thousands, you know, tens of thousands of people that were there. So yes. you speak about this, you know, you felt— you felt for the loved ones and the people that actually passed. My thought I had when you said that is collective grief. You know, when you have an experience like 9-11 that's public or when you lose a celebrity or a public figure of some sort, people come together in many ways. So with that collectiveness and your background and expertise, do you feel through that collective grief that's just one way that we're all connected? I'm sorry if this is a hard transition. In many ways, it just relates to what I thought you said in regards to how you felt for others. Yeah, I have a more critical reflection on that very question, however. I think it's just simply true that common shared experiences that are extreme in emotion form a, high, a very powerful binding force among people. And that binding force, yes, it's a shared grief, but in the other limit, it's a shared anger, which of course the nation felt. And then we go bust into Iraq to 
it, it, no one would say this, but we all knew it was true. No one would say this officially, but all knew it was true. We got to bust some heads, all right? And if it's, uh, if we can't find the guy in the desert, let's find somebody else and bust some heads, all right? Just as a kind of a revenge. So the shared emotion uh, can take all manner of turns. Uh, so I, I will not declare that to always be a good thing. Right. Uh, but it is definitely a thing. So let me start with that. Second, again, I think a lot about cosmic perspectives and numbers. And in my letter the next morning, I did a fast calculation about how many people probably died in the towers, not realizing that the planes hit early enough so that the bulk of the people who would have been in the towers were not yet there, hadn't yet shown up for work. So the death toll was a fraction of what I thought it might have been in that letter. What I lamented was that the world had reached a state where mass expressions of violence such as that, I thought we had left that in our rearview mirror as time moved forward. It was about the same death toll of September 11th as was on December 7th, 1941, with the attack on Pearl Harbor. Last I checked the numbers, they were equivalent, several thousand people, okay? Anyone who lived through that or read the headlines in 1941 carried that with them for decades. That was a benchmark. And I asked myself this question. I'm almost sorry I did. I asked myself this question. Are we going to commemorate December 7th every year, forever into the future? And if we are, why are we going to do that? Wouldn't it be time to move on? Yeah. And I arrived at the conclusion, we will commemorate December 7th as long as there are people who are alive who live through it, or as long as there's not a greater tragedy that takes place afterwards where your sight lines through time cannot penetrate it to see previous tragedies that preceded it. Sure enough, September 11th happens. When was the last time you heard somebody talk about December 7th, a day that will live in infamy? To get there, you have to leapfrog over an equally bad disaster. And that's hard to do. Yeah. Because people alive today live through, more people alive today live through that than anyone who's left who lived through December 7th. So that's just a little observation. I'm sad that now we have something such as December 7th to have to commemorate every year. And I remembered September 11th, 2002, the New York Times collected essays and op-eds and letters to the editor to reflect on the anniversary of September 11th. And I wrote, I wrote a letter that they published, and uh, if you allow me to dig it up, because it's a very short letter, because I took a lot of time to make it short, <laughs> which is a, a famous quote from a, one of the great writers of the past. Yeah, it's just and, how, do you, how do you make something short about that, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so, so what would that be? Is that, was it here? Nope, that's not it. Here it is. So if you allow me to read what I wrote, September 11th, 2002, to the editor. When I think of anniversaries, I think of occasions to remember people, places, and events. 
that had been largely forgotten over the previous year. For me, however, not a day has gone by when I do not think of the World Trade Center and the thousands of lives lost in its rubble, just four blocks from my home. So maybe I'll use the anniversary as an excuse to try to think of something else for the day. Wow. So how did I feel? I, I was sad. I was sad. And one other sort of final point about this, and sorry to drag on the story because it's, it's probably Place. dragging you through places you didn't need to go through again. So I was a geek kid. I'm, I'm card-carrying geek adult, but I was a geek kid <laughs> from way back. So the less emotions influenced my thoughts, the better I was, okay? Uh, there's no room for emotions. I don't care what it is. Sad, happy. I can be sad, I can be happy, but it's not running my life, okay? Okay. So, if I go to a sad movie, I, I don't mind tearing up, but it's not, they're not, I'm, I'm in the moment, but I can suck back up the tears and go, you know, play table tennis, you know? I don't, it's, I'm not consumed by emotions, all right? I, I, don't, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it was a fact. After 9-11, this dividing line in my brain that said, it's time to be rational. Okay, you can shed a tear for this sad movie. That, that, was, a, that was a rationalist dividing line that I can visit back and forth. After September 11th, it got scrambled. I have no other way to say it. My logical mind blended with my emotional mind, and I no longer had full control over what I was experiencing in any given moment, or what I was feeling or thinking at any given moment. It was the mixture of those two. So is this the first time you're saying that you felt emotions, not, uh, for lack of better words, got the best of you, or was or had some kind of control over you? Uh, that's probably accurate, but that's not how I was thinking about it. Okay. I was just simply saying, is this how most people are? <laughs> I was, I was saying, know, wow, this is a whole different mental state than I'm in here. And no, it's, it's just that when I tried to be rational, the emotions were no longer outside the locked door. They were surrounding me in that moment. And you know what happened? My writing got better. Okay. I mean, if there's a silver lining to all this, I was a better writer. Previous to that, yeah, let me tell you about the universe, and I'm Mr. Professor, you know, Professor Neil, telling you about the universe. After that, it's, let me tell you what the universe feels like. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Okay. And... It was only after that when I was able to even come to the realization that the famous painting by Van Gogh, The Starry Night, the one we all know, you've seen it for sure, The Starry Night. You know, as an astrophysicist, I know what the night sky looks like, and it does not look like what he painted. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Vinny. It's, it's not surprise. what it looked like. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> so I was prepared before 9-11 and its effect on my emotional state I was prepared to say, this is beautiful and the colors are vibrant and I'll give him a hall pass. 
you know, just because he, plus he killed himself two years later, whatever. So um, after my brain got scrambled, I would say, I know this is not what he saw. But you know what I also know? That it is definitely what he felt. He drew what he felt. And the way people feel about things in my life and in my mind rose in currency relative to whatever place it had before. Because as I told you, emotions had low currency in me. I'll let them in when I feel like it. And if I don't feel like it, you're not coming near me. All right? And if I see an emotional person in the street, I say, snap out of it. <laughs> you know, I had no place to receive and embrace and, and relate to it. No, I wouldn't be rude, of course. I wouldn't. I'm, I'm socialized. But I would wonder what's going on in their head, that they could not control it. I would just wonder what, what brain wiring is different there. After 9-11, my brain is scrambled because my emotional state was, was, was so assaulted by that ever-increasing measure of disaster. Not one plane, two planes. Not one explosion, two explosions. Not falling debris, falling people. Not one collapsed building, two collapsed buildings. Consumed in dust. Everything was that much. It was like a descent into a Dante hell. Okay? And so... Uh, I was able to think and feel in the ways I think other people were thinking and feeling. And for a while there, I looked up the definition, and I think I got this right, I was an empath. I went from being a non-emotional geek to being an empath. I, I saw someone in the airport who was like seated, um, and she had flowers, and she was crying. To a tear, not, I mean, she just kind of sat clearly sad. I, I wanted to say, what's wrong? How can I help? I, I was like, oh, I was like, oh my gosh. Even other people had subtle little facial expressions. I said, oh, that person's really sad. Or oh, that person's angry. I wonder what's happening inside them. And I, it was like these, 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 I had these new pair of lenses where I was seeing people's feelings as never before. And that manifested in my writings. Now, some of that's been tamped down since then, but I went through maybe two years where it was coursing within me. Now it's tamped down, but it's, I still know what that is, and I know what it's like, and I do feel it, and I do see it in others. By the way, it probably also made me a better educator, right? In the following simple way. I'll know if I'm boring you. <laughs> no, you're not. It's just like, I, 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 this is a sensitive side of Neil that I, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to see. <laughs> yeah, it never comes up. There's no reason for it to come up because it all traces to 9-11, for goodness sake. Yeah, but I think, yeah. the, I, I think the balance of emotions are important. It's interesting to hear how you've had that divide for so long because I think it is important to not allow your emotions to control you. But I think it's, in my opinion, very important to allow yourself to feel because I believe those emotions will show up to the surface in other ways with it maybe if you don't realize it. Yeah, I think I get that. And that's, you know, many therapists will say that. But I wasn't bottling the emotion. They weren't bottled. It wasn't, oh, let me prevent these emotions. No, sorry, it wasn't these emotions want to manifest, Yeah. but I'm not going to let them. It's... So you're not suppressing. Yeah, I wasn't... They just really weren't there. And, and, and there's a difference here. I swear to you, they, they weren't there. 
um, and when I said they want to get in the door because I'm watching a sad movie, I'll let them in, but they don't, they carry no currency within me. I, I, I don't know how else to say that, that they were not bottled up. But what I want to tell you is coming as a geek and with many of my colleagues on the autism spectrum, I'm going to say with no official training in therapy, I'm going to say that you're not in a position to judge that if someone doesn't have emotions, they should. Right. Okay. People on the autism spectrum will not have the emotions you have, for example. They just won't. And you're going to say, well, you should. You'll be a more complete person. No, I'm not buying that. I know people who've never had any emotions, and they're perfectly happy in their labs doing their science. Right. So this whole thing, a whole person is the balance between your rational self. No, no. I will say it's different, but I'm not going to value judge it. And I, nor, any more than I'm going to value judge the person who's prostrate in the street because they cannot control the force of their emotions on their body. I'm going to see how I can help them. Not to say, oh, snap out of it, be less emotional. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I think we all handle things and we're just, we're just different. <laughs> we're literally just different people different. in many ways. Yeah. I love differences. They're, they form the spectrum of humanity yeah. in every dimension that we see differences to exist. So w with this experience, uh, you know, I was just went through a 9-11. You, you've tapped into, you know, the thought process of how contemplating death and being aware of death has been a motivating factor for you. Oh, yeah, but that had nothing to do with 9-11. No, no, of course. I'm saying this is something I'm sure you've thought for a, quite a long time with your background. But yeah, Oh, yeah, yeah, just my whole life. I yeah. just wonder. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the reason why I said it had nothing to do with 9-11, I didn't know anyone who died in 9-11. Okay, right. so I don't have the firsthand story that you do about loss, personal loss. So for me, the loss is more statistical, right, and the larger story you know what else I added to this? I meant to say, uh, forgive me. Are we at war? This is a tragedy. It's headlines, world headlines for a month. It's national headlines for six months. It's local headlines for a year. By the way, the World Trade Center is my backyard, right? So it not only affected me, American, I'm an American, it affected my city, it affected my backyard where I took my kids on strollers in in the plaza of, of the World Trade Center, okay? So it was an assault on, in every way you can on a person's life, okay? So look at how we reacted. So the death toll was between three and 4,000 on the whole day when you add up all of the plane crashes. I did the math on this. Between, and by the way, this is in the book, in the book on life and death, okay, just for context. Between 1939 and 1941, basically the duration of the Second World War, 1,000 people were killed per hour for every hour of that war. Now, just put that in context. The fact that we can react, this is a weird way to think about it. I'm not promoting this as the general way people should think about the world. But that doesn't make it any less true. The fact that 3,000 American dead in a day makes headlines for as long as it did 
Whereas a thousand people were dying per hour for every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, 52 weeks a year for six years. And that fact alone was not making headlines? No, it's the troops have advanced on this shore. You're reading the, the macroscopic strategy of the warfare, not the actual death toll. The fact that those deaths on September 11th made that much news told me we are living in as peaceful a world as civilization probably has ever seen. When you add up the death tolls of all the wars and all the areas of conflict, and all the way, and just, we just happen to be able to communicate death tolls faster and more efficiently today. And it doesn't make it less tragic, but if you want me to assess whether or not we live in a safe world, yeah, I'd la rather live in this world than during either of the world wars, where whole cities were laid waste by tanks and planes and bombs. And, and you know how many millions of people died in Vietnam, you know, 50,000, 55,000 Americans alone died in Vietnam. It's an entire baseball stadium's worth of people. Millions of North and South Vietnamese died, millions. So I think about this, it's the comparison of, of numbers. You look at automobile deaths. They took an uptick during COVID, but on average we were hitting 35,000 people dying on the roads, being hit by cars or dying in cars a year? What is that? That's 100 people a day. 100 people a day. So after a month, pick a month, any month, as many people died on our roads as who died on September 11th. Oh, by the way, another month follows that, and then another month, and another month. So we don't tend to view deaths rationally. How do you view it? I view it always. I'm, I'm saying, sorry, let me be more precise. We don't tend to shape our emotions around death rationally. This is, I'm just, this is like that old quote. Who said it from some long ago? A single death is a tragedy, but a thousand deaths is a statistic. Huh. Right? Oh, God. Yeah, okay. that's, so... So anyway, back to your, uh, we had moved on, I think, to some other point that you made. What was your yeah, I mean, question? Yeah, I, I know, reading, how I'm listening and reading how you spoke about it in you know, your life and death chapter, how you said death motivates well, you. Well, let me just add in here, sorry to interrupt. Let me just add a, the obvious conclusion. What did we spend to fight the war after that terrorist attack on New York City? Upwards of a trillion dollars. So let's ask a question. Suppose we took a, tr a trillion dollars and did all we could to stop traffic accidents. We would save 35,000 lives a year. And you know what's interesting? The press doesn't write stories about the person who didn't die. Of course. That's not considered news. That that I'm fascinated by this. Reality. Uh, yeah, what does that say about live. what does that say about humans? <laughs> you know. Well, because it means not all deaths are equal. As we began this conversation, yeah. you can get shot and fall dead. Oh, that's bad. You got shot. Or we can sever the veins and arteries and vertebrae of your neck, and that 
comes across a little more tragically. Yeah, the culture of death, the culture of death just shifts. The culture of death shifts as time, as time goes on. So we're in a unique position. So that's why I'm so curious with your background, how, how do you view death? Oh, by the way, to get your head chopped off? Oh, great. Okay, let's go that's there. That's a fast death. That was invented to be humane by Monsieur Guillotine. It was, okay, well, it's efficient and, and somebody doesn't have to hold the, 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 the blade. And yeah, you're, you go from alive to being dead very quickly. So, but I don't know anyone who would say, when I die, I want my head chopped off. I don't know anyone who would say that. So it's a weird yeah. relationship we have with modes of death. But you were going to talk about, thank you for bringing up the book, uh, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization, and the last chapter is on life and death. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, it's interesting because that cosmic perspective is something I've always naturally done. You mentioned how, you know, we have that instinct to look up, and that instinct to look up puts things in perspective. It calms me, and it makes me nervous as shit at the same time because <laughs> what, like, what the hell is going on out there? And I don't know what better man to discuss that with. And, you know, you speak a lot about objective truths and personal truths, and obviously I think those two are a driving force of how we live our life. So mm-hmm. my, my question around death is, you know, we have— you have your biological death, which has plenty of objective truth to it. And then there's philosophy. It's completely objective. That's correct. Right. But then do you leave any wiggle room for any personal truths for what happens after we die? Well, within myself, I mean, I don't judge what others think or want or need to be true or in their own sense of the world that they know to be true. In me, I don't have sufficient evidence that would convince me that anything other than my body decomposing at the whims of microorganisms and other flora and fauna, I have no, I, personally, I don't have any reason to think that anything other than that is gonna happen to me. And it's not hard for me to think that because you're not asking yourself, how old are you, by the way? 34. Okay, you're not saying to yourself, where was I 40 years ago? I had to be somewhere. How, how come I didn't have any thoughts? How, you, you're not sitting here lamenting your absence of existence before you were born. You don't, you don't waste any time thinking about it. So for me, my absence of existence after I die is not in any way different to me from my absence of existence before I was born. Right. It's just an absence of existence, period. And I'm not here to preach that. You never hear me, if you ask me, I'll tell you, but I'm not a preacher of this. I'm just telling you how I, based on my knowledge of the physical universe, that understand, I'm good with that understanding. So at the same time, of course, you know, the evidence turns something objective, but does the lack of evidence does at the same time doesn't confirm that something's not possible, correct? Well, it can if you make a statement if you say, if you say, I had a near-death experience and I was floating above my bed, okay? Now, the absence of that evidence, should it mean, is that evidence for absence? Well, you have to design the experiment. Okay, so if I think you're prone to having these out-of-body experiences, I'll get someone who you've never met to write a phrase, you know, what goes up must come down. Or there's some phrase <laughs> that is easy to remember that everybody knows and you don't know what's written on it, and I'll put it on an upward-facing platform above your dying bed, okay? Now, you have an out-of-body experience, you see your body and you go back, I said, what did that phrase say? If you can't tell me what that phrase said, 
then you cannot reference your outer body experience as an objective truth. So there are ways to test the claims if you want to test them. But, but you can't just use as the out, well, you didn't show it didn't exist, so therefore it could exist. That doesn't always work. People say we can't prove that God doesn't exist. Well, yes, I can if God existing requires other things being true. If God existing, if the Christian, Judeo-Christian God existing, if for it to be true, it would mean in a plane crash from 10,000 feet, only the Christians survive, and everyone else who's atheist, Muslim, Buddhist, does not survive that plane crash, you're gonna have some good evidence that your God is overlooking his devout followers. But that doesn't happen. It's not how it happened. Even September 11th, all right, there is, there is a, a, someone dying, and there was a fireman chaplain who is giving the extreme unction, the last rites, to this dying person, okay? Because people said, if God is in the world, where was he on September 11th? And someone wrote in, he's in the hearts of the people trying to save the people. Okay, fine. Do you know what happened? To, you must know what happened to this firefighter who's administering last rites. You know what happened? A piece of debris fell off the building and killed him. If you want to look at biblical evidence for things, that looks like really good evidence for the devil, okay? <laughs> and it shows that the devil is stronger than God, all right? If you want to go there. All right, so my yeah. point is, sure, I, you don't have to listen to anything science says. That's the whole point of a free country. Just try not to rise to power and then enact legislation based on your personal truths that don't apply to anybody else who shares, others who don't share your personal truth. Now, I, guess I, have an, I got another podcast I got to get on. Let me say something that is very deep for me, okay? Please. Okay. And I, this is in the book, so I, I don't even have – I could just say buy the book, see you later. <laughs> but in <laughs> nah, all please, fairness please, to please. your followers, to your listeners. By the way, I, I narrated the, the audio book. I narrated the audio book. <laughs> Anybody wants to be <laughs> We'll plug okay. that in the description. We'll plug that. Okay. It's a fantastic voice. Uh, if anybody wants it. But knowing I'm going to die brings focus to every day that I'm alive. Focus. In fact, I'll go beyond that and say it gives meaning to every day that I'm alive. I say, is there something I want to accomplish? Do it now. Because I'm not going to be around. If I live it, lead a natural death, I might have another 30 years. I'm counting those years down. Okay. Now, if knowing you're going to die gives meaning to your life, then living forever, mathematically speaking, would be to lead a life that has no meaning at all. And so a much scarier prospect than dying for me is the prospect of living forever. Because how would I bring focus? I, I could force it on me, but I'd rather eat popcorn and watch a movie and put it off till tomorrow. What kind of life is that? And by the way, this is not, I didn't just pull the, just think about it. If you brought flowers to a loved one and the flowers were plastic, how would your loved one feel? They wouldn't think you love them very much, would they? Even though the plastic flowers would live forever. They'll never die. Isn't that a sign of effect? No. 
You want the one, the, you want the kind that will die. Why? Because when you bring them in your home, now you tend to them. You put them in water. You will change the water. You'll watch the, the you'll watch the, the flower petals open up in response to sunlight. You will smell the flowers. You will care for them through their senescence as the neck of the the stem weakens and the flower bud droops right until the end when you discard the flowers. The fact that you knew they were going to die meant you were going to take care of them. It created the relationship that you had between them. So when I think of death, first you bury me so that flora and fauna can dine on my body the way I have dined on their bodies my entire life. Yes, go ahead and do that. And add to that this quote from Horace Mann, the great educator from two centuries ago. A graduating class, he was a university administrator, I think, I think he was president of a university. Anyway, he's giving a speech. It was his last speech, and he said, I beseech you, I think we got to bring that word back, don't you? I think Beseech. so, too. I was just thinking the it's, same it's, shit. It's, it's, a total, it's a total word in need of a resurrection. I beseech you to treasure up in your hearts these, my parting words. Be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. Talk about the context for living in anticipation of death. It's all in that phrase. And I, I got to go in a minute, but let me lead you with one other story that happened to me like six months ago. Okay. So uh, when was it? Mid-2022. I get this urgent communique through my, I have very complicated channels to reach me, but it got through. It was from a funeral director who said, I recently cremated an 11-year-old girl who died by being run over by her school bus. She was very much into science, especially the universe, and in her casket, uh, and so, and so her birthdays always had astronomical themes, and in her casket, she was buried with one of your books. Holy shit. Not buried, because she was cremated. In her casket, she was put in her casket with one of your books, was, which was her favorite book. And it was uh, Astrophysics for Young People in a Hurry. And he asked me, can I write something on the wall? <laughs> Holy. <laughs> what do you do? Okay, so, all right, um, I'm going to read to you. It's not long. It's longer than what I just read, but then I got to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What time do I get? Damn. Uh, let me just call ahead here. We're seeing in uh, live fashion how Neil delays next appointments. <laughs> okay, exactly. <laughs> um, Listen, I'm going to plug this in here real quick while you're typing that in. I have one more question. If you don't have time, don't answer it. But I want to know if you're scared of dying. I know you tapped into that in your book explaining why you haven't been scared of death because of your fear. Well, no. Okay, hold on. So I, okay, go on. Yeah, that's your point. Go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to multitask here since I'm just okay. squeezing all we got. And it'll take me a second to dig this up, so go on. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said you're not, you don't fear, you'd fear you know, not accomplishing 
more essentially, but just if you fear the latter of not accomplishing more, doesn't that still leave the option to still be fearful of death? Are you saying, is that one of those events that just supersedes one fear, therefore you're not scared of dying? Does that make sense? Okay, hang on. That's good. That's good logic you're bringing in there. And I'm going to ask you to ask it of me again. No problem. <sighs> I hear the sounds in New York behind you. It's making me want to come back. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you hear the sirens. Yeah, that's it. Okay. So it took me maybe a weekend, two or three days, and then here's what I posted to the wall. Dear Mr. Wilson, he's head of the funeral parlor. I submitted this to their tribute wall because I'm in reply to him because he felt that, I mean, what a, what a guy to who own a funeral home and then reach out in this way. I mean, I didn't think funeral parlor owners did this sort of thing. So here it is. The curiosity of children famously knows no bounds around the house, the backyard, the neighborhood, any new place. But when that curiosity includes the universe itself, you're in the presence of someone poised to change the world. To lose Annalise at age 11, brimming with so much cosmic ambition, will forever leave me wondering what she might have accomplished as a grown-up kid. Grown-up kids are scientists, and anybody else who retains their childhood curiosity into adulthood. Of course, we will never know the answer to that question, but we do know the physics of cremation. The energy contents of her body, itself reduced to ash, actually enters Earth's atmosphere. It ultimately escapes to space in the form of infrared energy, radiating in all directions at the speed of light filling the voids of the cosmos with her presence. At the moment I write this, Annalise's energy has extended a half trillion miles into space, more than a hundred times the distance to Pluto. Though she will live in our collective memories for all our lives, in the universe, she lives for all eternity. Respectfully submitted. Neil deGrasse Tyson, April 3rd, 2022. Wow, Neil. So, yeah, I, I think about death. Yeah, yeah. Now, now you had a, a final question for me on this? Yeah, what yeah was and, I'll get, and I'll get you out of here. You speak in the book about, and I think it's still the same chapter of life and death, about how you don't fear death, you fear a life of not accomplishing all that you could. I'm paraphrasing there, so hopefully I didn't yeah, butcher no, that's that. Good. Yeah, that's it. I, I, I don't want to be on my deathbed and damn, uh, you know, why did I spend all that time doing nothing <laughs> when I could have I could have been loved people more? I could have, you know, held my kids, my grandkids, whatever it is. I could have discovered something more. Yeah, I don't want to be in a regret situation. Right, but with that in mind, just because you fear that perhaps more, that doesn't completely neglect the potential fear of death. So you just completely release the idea that of the transition that is death. You're completely fearless of it. No, I'll say I've. I've lived a full life, and now it's time for someone else to live their fullest life. By the way, if we live forever, we'd need more than one planet because the population would fully outstrip our resources. So this living forever thing, really people should think it through. I don't wanna. They really should. Now, it's easy for me to speak this way because I'm not on my deathbed having lived a natural life. So. Will I change my mind in that moment? Will, be, will there be some 
pastor or priest or, or someone in a religious tradition will come to me, will you repent or whatever they do if they try to convert you in the last moment? And I always thought that's, that's not fair to other people who live their whole lives piously. <laughs> right. Yeah. If, if, if you could live, you could be a complete criminal your whole life and in the last moment repent. Really? I don't that, like that. That sounds like the easy way, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, Neil, I, I, uh, I know you got to get out of here, so I really want to thank you for your time. This has been incredible. I could talk to you for 25 more hours if I had the time with you. Um, if you have any, I think you've said everything, hopefully, that you wanted to say. If you have any last words, as they say, please feel free. But uh, I want to thank you so much. <laughs> no, on a show about death, don't ask someone, what are your last words? <laughs> That's exactly what I was going for. That's exactly what I was going for. <laughs> your last words on this show. Let's finish the <laughs> sentence. Okay. I wanted to leave it open-ended for you to spite me there, so I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Last words, I would say, and once again, this is in the book, but I'll, I'll say it here succinctly. The total number of people who have ever been born, number is about 100 billion. Now ask, how many total possible people can be born? Just look at the genome and rearrange it. You know, it makes tall people, short people, you know, dark-skinned people, light-skinned people, everybody in between. You can make all kinds of people with the human genome. How many total humans are possible? That number is astronomically large. It is large, 10 to the 30th power, which is a billion, trillion, trillion. It's likely even bigger than that. Ugh. Which means, in practical terms, no one who will ever be born will be identical to you first of all, in every way. But that's, that's not the most important fact. It's that we're the lucky ones. A point made by Richard Dawkins, more poetically than I can recite here. We're the lucky ones. We're the ones who get to die because you only get to die for having lived. Most people who could ever exist will never even be born. So, so no matter what your lot is in life, if you are, have a disease or you have cancer, you're crippled, whatever is the thing, at the end of the day, you're alive, not dead, nor not having ever been born. So take every occasion you can to smell the flower to drink in the sunsets and the sunrise and, the, and the, the majestic sky above you that they cradle through the nighttime hours and celebrate life because you won the lottery and most people will never even know there was a lottery. If that's not motivation to live life to the fullest, and not fear death, because I'd rather die than never having been born. Uh, I don't know what is. Well, religions can help you out of this as well, but I'm, I'm not a religious guy. So this is for the non-religious people. <laughs> but they're, religious, they're people get reincarnated. They got whole stories. So you don't need to listen to me here. All right, yeah, I'm not, I'm what you not talking believe. to you. All right, yeah. you, you got all your answers.
Yeah, man. That's, uh, that's incredible. I'm a little less scared to die, even though you still made me a little paranoid thinking about the vast universe. That's okay. I'll get over it. Um, that's a natural state. Embrace it. <laughs> <laughs> believe me, I'm embraced. It could be the coffee, but uh, like I said, I didn't, oh. put, I didn't put bourbon in it. But Neil, yeah, a true pleasure. Hope one day I get to shake your hand. And uh, I want to thank you again so much for being here. Excellent. You're based where? I'm in LA, but my family's back east, so I come back east all the time. I see. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I, thank you for trusting me to share in your dialogue. Of course. It was an honor. It was a true honor. All right, all right Neil. Until next time, man, I appreciate you. You got it. Thank you, guys. <laughs>